Welcome to the With Ingram series of podcasts. I'm Philip Ingram, and today I'm with Tom Presley from Everbridge. Warning, you might actually learn something. Right, I'm sitting in the Kempton Fitzroy in, um, well, just opposite Russell Square in London, um, with Tom Presley from Everbridge. Now, I'll let him introduce himself in a minute, but this is um, uh, the next of the With Ingram series of podcasts. Um, Tom, thank you for coming to speak to me. Can you tell me a little bit about you, yourself, and a little bit about Everbridge? Hi, Philip. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good to be here, and uh, thanks for setting this up. So, yes, so I'm Tom Presley. I'm the VP of International Marketing at Everbridge. Um, I'm fairly new into the company. I've been, been with them for about three months now. I've had a fairly long career in uh, marketing. I started out in retail marketing and decided that when that wasn't really going to be the place uh, that was going to be the most exciting uh, opportunities for a marketer. I decided to move into technology marketing. I've been in that sector for the last 10 years now and came across Everbridge and thought actually this is one of the few companies that I've come across recently that's actually trying to improve the world rather than just be concentrating on cold hard cash on the bottom line. Obviously that's uh, an important part of doing business but uh, the company itself is actually trying to make the world a better and a safer place so it seemed like a good company to work for. Uh, and Everbridge is into sort of public messaging and, and the public messaging space. There's something going on in Europe at the moment that's making this important. What is it? Um, why should we be focusing on public messaging? And, and what is public messaging? Yeah, so, I mean, Everbridge itself is, works in the, what's called the critical event management space. So anything that uh, any, we, we refer to as a critical event could be anything from an extreme weather event. Obviously, we've had Hurricane Doran recently over in the States that caused uh, absolute havoc. Uh, it could be a terrorist uh, attack. It could be a system failure. Now, um, when you're talking about that from a, an independent private company perspective that has and carries its own problems for sustainability and continuity but from a public warning perspective we're now actually starting to hear from a lot of governments worldwide who have woken up to the fact that they need a much more sophisticated solution in place to help keep people safe their, uh, their, their populace and their population safe when any type of critical event occurs. The thing that's uh, really put this on the agenda for Uh, people in Europe uh, recently is a new directive out from the European Union which came out in December 2018 part of the uh, the EECC which is the um, European Electronic Communications Code which deals with a lot of different aspects of modern communications particularly around uh, 5G is obviously a very hot topic at the moment but there is uh, an article within that directive article uh, 110 which uh, states that every uh, European uh, Union member state has to have a public warning system in place that is operated via mobile phone and these countries have to have a solution in place by the middle of 2022. So this isn't an area siring that's going to go off from a mobile phone, this is something a little bit more sophisticated. Um, surely if, if Boris gets his way on the 31st of October we're not bothered by European directives? <laughs> well, that's the the big question, isn't it? But uh, I think the uh, to take those sort of uh, questions separately, the piece about the mobile phone. I think it, we're coming from a background where the governments have been trying to solve the best way to communicate with their population during a crisis for many years. You know, from back to the Second World War and using sirens through to uh, TV warnings, radio messages, social media, more of late. Uh, Now, the fact that 
probably 90, I think about 92% of the European population has a mobile phone. This is a device that is no more than a couple of feet away from us uh, when, wherever we are during the day. I mean, there is sort of... Uh, even I saw some stats recently of how many people actually take their phones into the lavatories with them, which is quite <laughs> disgusting. But it's a case in point. Uh, these uh, things are always close by, and it therefore creates a perfect opportunity and a platform for uh, for governments to actually communicate with people and uh, transmit messages. Now there are a lot of different ways that messages can be transmitted on mobile phones via different technologies. Some will uh, have the phone. Uh, going off, and others will allow you a much more sophisticated sort of two-way conversation with that. But I think the fact is that the mobile telephone is such the, the important go-to device um, that actually brings this whole piece of legislation together, and that's why I think it's important. Now, the, the second point vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Mr. Johnson, uh, I think regardless of what happens on the 31st of October, this is not something that the civil service will be, some, will be keen to drop even if we do walk away from Europe without a deal. I think this is, we're not dealing with just common or garden policy here, we're dealing with the safety of the population and people's lives. So I don't think this particular impetus to improve the government setup to deal with something like this is going to go away. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And I, th I think, uh, it, I, I'm not sure whether this is wrapped up in the, the, the wider European bills that are out there to say we're adopting European law. But um, you're, you're talking of then sending messages to my mobile phone. Um, is this something that the data protection community are now suddenly going to go, oh, should we be worried about this? How have you got my personal details? Why are you communicating with me without my permission? Uh, do I have to sign up to this or is there another bit of technology that's getting in there? And how do you, you reassure me that yeah, you're not interfering with my personal private rights? The, uh, I think the data protection community are always going to stick their oar in uh, whenever it's uh, an opportunity to do so. But I, and again, this comes down to the type of technology that you actually choose to go with. I think, for example, I can give you an example of uh, a technology that, that we actually advocate, which is, um, uh, amongst others, is a location-based uh, SMS. Uh, and that really only uses a telephone number and your SIM location. Now, all that data actually sits with the network provider, and that information effectively, in sort of layman's terms, we, we ask for that data from the, the network providers once. And uh, the network providers retain the data, it's the data that you would have with your contract. And then if, the, if we want to actually see where you are moving to, so if we've messaged you to say, you know, where, where are you, there is a crisis, you should move out of this danger zone, we can then message you again, having taken those two pieces of information to find out where you've actually moved to and whether you're actually moving in the right place, right location, and actually keep track of you as you move away from danger. Now, that's not something that requires any data sign-off. It's fully GDPR compliant, so no one needs to be sort of rushing to the uh, local authorities complaining that we're about to steal their identity or anything like that. So this is available, if I understand, for uh, different cities, different municipalities. You can put it into smaller geographic areas, or you can do it countrywide. Um, what are the sort of solutions that are out there? You know, how, how does it fit all those different um, ty uh, types of uh, scales that you get out there? Yeah, this is, this is an interesting one because I think what we're seeing is a lot of governments have come in to solve uh, this particular piece of legislative change by uh, 
usually going external to their knowledge base that they have and have started talking to different third parties. Now, depending on what third party you actually talk to, they may give you one version of the truth or what they see as the best. So from an Everbridge perspective, we actually advocate a scenario scoping exercise for each of these different countries because each different country ha is different. So it will have different uh, issues that they have to face and deal with dependent on the actual makeup and fabric of the country. So um, to your point, um, you could use a solution called Cell Broadcast. Now Cell Broadcast is the best solution to get a message out to a big population incredibly quickly. You could send a message out to people in seconds and it would be delivered. Uh, that's very well and good if the message is a one-time send, if it's a um, nationwide emergency. Now, there's actually quite few of those around. It could be, uh, you know, a drone, an, an unknown or unauthorized drone strike. You know, we've sort of seen what's happened in the Middle East recently. There was an unpredictability about where that would land. So you could message people, uh, everyone in the country, to say there is danger, take cover, whatever. Now, where the usefulness of cell broadcast actually ends is when you're actually trying to get a specific one-on-one -on -one dialogue going with people that are actually in a danger zone. So, for example, I think if you think about the uh, attack in the chemical attack in Salisbury, the, the Novichok episode, um, blasting a single message to people there wouldn't have been an effective way of communicating with them. Actually, what would have been better is to identify the people that were in the danger zone communicate a very specific message to them and give them advice Are they f and start a two-way rapport with them uh, to then actually, um, for the emergency services, to then actually use to direct them to either uh, going to hospital or reporting to the police. And the other thing about that sort of secondary part is, that, uh, is the language piece because the, the directive says that you have to not only be able to communicate to your own people, but also to tourists that are visiting. And you have to be able to communicate in d different languages as well. And again, that's um, on the cell broadcast side. You can uh, get a message out very, very quickly, but there are shortcomings when it comes to um, uh, being reliant on what language setting there, are, there is on a particular device. Uh, some devices may actually have cell broadcast switched off. Um, location-based, it's slightly different. So there are sort of pros and cons to both. And in some countries that we work with, you know, we work for countries in, um, in Australia and Singapore and Sweden. And um, Sweden, for example, you know, there are coverage issues where there's just not phone signal in particular parts of the world. And they actually use sirens still in that part of the world. So there's lots of these different scenario testings. And really, Everbridge provides a, a very sort of agnostic platform that can... Uh, an open platform where all these different technologies can plug into it based on whatever scenario scoping has been done for that different country. So I know it's a bit of a, a sort of a long-winded answer but there's quite a lot of different detailed elements in order for these countries to get the right solution set to actually meet the, the, the requirements that they have. You've explained one solution that's out there. What, what are the other technical solutions that Everbridge has got? You know, the, your marketing team have been on to me. They've got the thumbscrews on me, and they're, and they're saying, make sure he mentions what it is that we have out there and, and the offerings that there are for people. What are the different offerings, and what are the advantages and disadvantages of each? Well, I mean, like I say, if we're talking purely about a... Um 
public warning sector. That is one part of what, what we do that sits under uh, an umbrella of critical event management. Uh, it's, a, it, it's a sort of classification that, that we have that talks about uh, all the different types of critical events and our um, platform that sits outside public warning and is geared more towards independent companies, private companies, um, uh, is, if you like, a sort of, uh, a sort of five-fold different uh, product suite that sits w within that particular portfolio. And uh, it can be as simple as mass notification, which I think you mentioned before, um, to ingesting data into a platform to give you the most relevant information. So if you would scan weather reports and traffic reports and so on and so forth. Um, you then have companies, what I used to sort of describe as having the big red folder up on the shelf that would tell you what to do in a crisis. You know, there is now a, a requirement to have that digitized and that's something that the platform could actually um, uh, incorporate. So your templates for responding to critical events is loaded into the platform as well. And then you have um, what we sort of call a single pane of uh, glass, which is our visual command center. It's, I've actually just come back from a, a trip to our office in Burlington, Massachusetts, our headquarters, and it's uh, an entire wall of, um, it's something like out of that minority report yeah. film. You know, it's very good. You can see all the different types of data being ingested into the platform. You can see the map on screen, where all your people are, where, um, and how you can actually communicate with them, uh, their location in the world. So it, there's a fantastic amount of data, and I think it's sort of indicative of where crisis management is actually moving to. I think from uh, the purely reactive state, where something happens and you have to communicate with people, to a proactive state where you're actually um, assuming and predicting some of these scenarios that you're likely to come up against and planning accordingly for that. So when it does happen, you're much better prepared to respond to that crisis and recover from it in better time. And I think in the future, as uh, more data and experience is ingested into uh, the Everbridge platform, we'll be able to get to an almost predictive state. Now, not that we can necessarily predict where a terrorist attack is going to be or anything like that, but uh, you know, there's a lot of um, earthquake data that we start uh, ingesting, so we can start figuring out where tremors are starting to happen and, and whether that's going to um, uh, turn into something more serious. So it's a very broad, um, overarching um, uh, management suite uh, for critical events, and we're taking our customers on a journey. I think a lot of companies, I sort of talk to, to companies and describe the, the full breadth of what we do, and it's a little bit daunting for some companies that are trying to, you know, just make sure that they lock up the front door at night and you know the keys are stayed, uh, somewhere safe. Um, and that's why we sort of take these companies on a what we call a sort of resilience maturity journey to take them to the point where they are. You know that sort of gold standard um, of looking after their people and um, keeping their business processes running in a crisis. Uh, so gold standard does it cost Brinks Matt bullion in in price? Uh, is it cost effective for companies to do this? Um, the European Directive is clearly saying that countries have to. Does it say that companies have to? Uh, it, it absolutely is cost effective. I think uh, it's obviously very dependent on where a company is on, on their journey um, and but again can you really put a, a particular price tag on 
keeping the people that work for you safe and uh, recovering your business sustainability in a crisis. So we always work with customers to understand what their requirements are and tailor our product set to meet their requirements. And obviously there is a little bit of money being made on our side out of that in order to invest back in our platform and help um, actually develop it for the future. But we've had no complaints from uh, our customers so far and in fact quite the opposite. So Tom, when cities or countries are asking you about solutions, what are the sort of things that they should be considering? How, how should they come to you? What questions should they be asking you? So Tom, uh, when, when cities or countries and governments come to you and ask for solutions, what are the sorts of things that they should be considering? Um, you know, are there any specific questions or areas that they should be looking at so that you can tailor your solutions in the right way for them? Well, I think the first thing they should be thinking about is the fact that they only have a few years left to actually get a solution set in place. Remember, this uh, European uh, legislative uh, deadline for this to have a solution set in place is the it's June 2022. So these governments really don't have a lot of time to get their act together. Um, so I think that's one important point. Then, in terms of the sort of questions they should be asking, I think this comes back to the the point of scenario scoping and actually what the uh, different governments want to uh, to be able to do with the um, the communication objectives that they have so for example uh, are they putting a solution in place that is going to benefit the emergency services what actual functionality do they want and I think you'll find that there's a big variance across uh, the different European countries in terms of actually what these different countries need and what these different agencies need. I think you then have to get the network providers on uh, task uh, to actually deliver the messages and then talk to third parties like Everbridge who are in best position to actually give you some impartial advice about the different solution sets that are out there in order to meet those scopes. So it's, it really encompasses uh, a lot more parties than just simply you know, going to uh, a consultant and asking for their best advice on, uh, on, on what to do. I think it's really important to engage the services, um, platform providers, even the general public to actually understand what the best solution fit is uh, and then you know, your questions kind of come out of that. Uh, so you're happy to approach people and, and give them advice rather than go in and try and just sell them a product? Well, yeah, I mean, ultimately, <laughs> you know, this is a, um, a situation where we're trying to keep people safe. And that very much should not be about a uh, money-saving exercise or a, a, uh, <laughs> a profit-making exercise. The point here is to get the right solution for the right country, for the right government, to actually keep uh, their population safe and their tourists and visitors safe. Uh, in the event of crisis and I think every uh, solution vendor out there uh, not just Everbridge has a duty to uh, be impartial and work with the uh, the, um, lo the local governments and, and um, people who are in charge of this process to make sure that they have the best advice to achieve the ultimate outcome which is uh, saving lives at the end of the day. Now, you're taking part, I understand, in the International Disaster Response and co-located International Security Expo at Olympia at the end of the year. What are you hoping to get out of those two events? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, events are absolutely fantastic opportunities to meet uh, people that, that we can help. 
you know, I think it's a, obviously from the uh, the initial price, uh, position of actually turning up there and um, selling the Everbridge brand to people and, and helping to build awareness over our platform is, of course, absolutely vital. Uh, but the one wonderful thing about these events is it brings like-minded people together to share ideas, to share content, and to get up to speed. I mean, this this is a, a an area where the technology is moving at such a breakneck pace and we're seeing developments happening all the time that you have to go to these events to actually understand what's happening, who the key players are, how you can actually collaborate and certainly from the public warning perspective how you can actually work together with a broader ecosystem to make sure that the right solutions are being delivered to the right governments for the right circumstances. So no, we're very excited about attending the uh, the events. I think it's going to be um, a great show. I think we're a stand uh, G80 uh, for the, uh, the International Disaster Response Expo so people should come by and say hello. Be delighted to see them. Well, I'd recommend that people come by and say hello. Um, and if they wanted to go, um, my strong advice would be go on the 3rd of December because um, there's free beer on the evening of the 3rd of December, a fantastic networking event. Uh, and another um, socialising event that'll be out there called Hashtag PizzaCon. We've got a flash mob, the local um, Pizza Express, which is, which is next door. Um, so there's good opportunities. And I'd, I'd strongly recommend people come and, and speak to the Everbridge team and see the um, Everbridge solutions that are out there because I, I do know how much good that they're doing across the country. Tom, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much indeed for giving up some of your time to talk to me this evening. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much, Philip.